Welcome to the Being Better Together podcast from Learning from Excellence and Civility Saves Lives. This podcast is a series of conversations with people who inspire us about making healthcare a better place to work. We cover a wealth of topics from workplace cultures through inspiration, laughter and joy to appreciative inquiry and how to do work safely. Hi, this is Chris from Civility Saves Lives. In this episode, Adrian and I chatted with Dr Alex Gillespie from the London School of Economics about his groundbreaking research into compliments within the NHS, what motivates them, what benefit they bring and how we might use them. It's an absolutely fascinating discussion and we ended up ranging across all sorts of things and at one point talking about why we say thank you to bus drivers and at another point there's a moment when Adrian and I have a sort of visceral intake of breath when Alex tells us a little bit about what some people do with compliments. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. Hello, so we are here with Alex Gillespie. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me, Adrian. Hi, Alex. Hi, Chris. So, Alex, we came across your work recently when we read your paper on compliments that we're going to be discussing um, today. Um, The paper resonated with me personally for a few reasons. One is that it seems to be aligned with what we're trying to do in learning from excellence or vice versa, the idea that we can gather insights and learn from what's working um, and also use that to um, change the motivation of the staff and uh, in potentially improve performance. Um, but it also resonated with me because I was once the author of a compliment letter. So a few years ago I was in hospital, had some experiences as a patient and I decided to write a letter. So I wrote to the chief executive, which is one of the sort of styles or um, types of letter that you describe in your paper where I wanted to sort of recognize um, individuals and systems within the organization that worked well in order that those individuals and the organization would learn from that and also just to express gratitude. And um, I discovered a good couple of years after I wrote the letter that it wasn't received by at least one of the individuals for whom it was intended. Um, and in fact, that was one of the reasons Learning from Excellence was created, was in recognition of the fact that we don't really um, pay much attention to compliments and gratitude and we could do better. The, the other reason the paper resonated with me was the, this concept of moral reinforcement that actually can compliments and gratitude be used to, uh, as a type of intervention to change behaviours, potentially to um, improve what were typically described as poor behaviours in healthcare. And that's something I'd like to spend some time talking about today. So there's quite a lot we, we could cover in relation to what you've written, what your work has been, learning from excellence and civility movement. Um, but before we do any of that, could you just give us a kind of brief summary on your professional biography um, and how you got into psychology and, and your current role. Okay. Uh, well, how I got into psychology, um, I had to choose something. <laughs> and uh, psychology provided a, a broad scope for investigating human behavior. I consider it a real privilege uh, to be a researcher in the field of psychology because most interesting things have an element of psychology in them. And I just 
I'm excited by exploring. I, I consider my job a bit of an explorer, you know, to, to map out the terrain of human relations and so on. And as I've done that, I've increasingly focused on the relations between people, often the problematic ones, uh, where there's misunderstandings and so on, but often also the, the good ones, where there's social recognition. But it's always in the space in between people, because I think we... We tend to focus just on individuals and not see the relationships. So I'm a psychologist which takes relationships as my object, not individuals. Um, in terms of my biography, uh, I did my undergraduate in Trinity College, Dublin, Ireland. I went for an MSc in the London School of Economics. I then did a PhD at the University of Cambridge in social psychology. And then I taught at the University of Cambridge for a while taught at the University of Stirling for a while and then moved back to London, which is where I am now at the London School of Economics in the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science, where I work on communication, so theoretical interests in communication, misunderstandings, recognition and so on, and practical concerns in healthcare, uh, how uh, people respond to positive feedback, negative feedback, and what we can learn, how, how the social relationship and the gap between us and the different perspectives we have is a source of learning and a source of social recognition in the case of compliments. That's great. I mean, completely on topic for uh, what we're interested in. Um, so Chris pointed at this, your paper to me. Um, he found it first. Chris, what, what were your thoughts on the, the compliments paper? So your paper, Alex, I, I've got to admit there are occasionally papers that, that really hit me and yours hit me like a sledgehammer. And the reason it did is I have a background in governance and I spent a long time looking at complaints. I got into the compliments stuff because actually it was really selfish. From my perspective, I found that I was going out and giving staff a hard time about X, Y, and Z, and that was all I was doing. And it was a long, long time ago. This was 13, 14 years ago now. And I realized that in order to try to balance things up for myself, so I had, at that time, I very much went for, if I'm going to say something negative to one person, I'm going to say something positive to somebody else, and that made me feel a wee bit better. I probably had my ratio wrong, um, but that, that was the starting bit of it. And then I got introduced to Adrian, who's this guy who's looking at all this positive stuff and then I started thinking maybe we can learn from this but I never went back and thought about the compliment letters and I read your paper and it was it was like good grief here's all this data that is hiding in plain sight and we choose to not interpret it we choose to see it as we almost see it as froth isn't that lovely yes very good let's move on and look at the bad thing that's happened and um I would love it if you could give us your summary of, of of the paper. And then the other bit I'm really interested in is what drove you to do this? So over to you, if that's all right. Right. That's really interesting to hear um, how it connects with your experience. It's actually not a million miles from, from how we came to it. So I'm going to tell you how we came to it. And then I'll introduce the paper. So this is work I've done with uh, Dr. Tom Reader, who's also at the London School of Economics. He's an organizational psychologist and I'm more a communications person. But obviously there's a lot of intersection there. And we were having a discussion about 10 years ago 
on defensiveness in organizations and why organizations don't learn from problems. And as we were discussing this, we thought, you know, there must be some way we can look into this. And we hit upon the idea of doing 10 freedom of information requests to hospitals asking for complaints and 10 freedom of information requests asking for compliments to see whether they'd be more forthcoming on the compliments than on the complaints. So it was sort of motivated by this. And of course, that's what we found. So uh, the, the 10 hospitals said, you know, they, they wouldn't give us the complaints or they'd lost or they, there was various excuses, but all the compliments came back. And we were like, okay, so there is an organizational tendency towards the positive. But then as we looked into it a bit more, we realized one, the content of these compliments was fantastic and, you know, couldn't be ignored. And two, there was one hospital which didn't respond. And they said, quote, we have no legal obligation to keep the, the compliments. And so we destroy them. And for social psychologists, this is like a, um, I mean, this really hurts because compliments are part of this sort of the, the social lubrication, the, 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 the goodwill that, that floats around the world. If we all work to rule, the world just wouldn't work, right? There's, there's a lot of goodwill going around and, and we, we bolster each other up with this by, by acknowledging and, and, and sort of saying thank you. And that's what gratitude is. It's a sort of um, pervasive social glue which acknowledges our interdependence and rewards in some sense, but even just acknowledgement is a reward at an identity level, you know, to, to be important to someone is, is, is what a compliment is saying. You're, you're important to me. You made a difference to my life. And this is, this gets at the heart of who we are as human beings and meaning and meaning making. And you know, what are we doing if we're, we're not doing things in, in that social context? So then we got more and more interested in the compliments and expanded the study uh, solicited more compliments and begun begun analyzing them. And again, we were getting this feedback from, from hospitals that they didn't have a record of them. Uh, it was handled by the complaints team and they didn't know if they had them. And, and it seemed very unclear what was going on. So, so then we did our systematic study, which 54 uh, NHS trusts, and we managed to get over 1,200 compliments and we systematically analyze them and our questions were one what is it which patients think is high quality care and and just in itself that is important and I should say before we did this of course we did a literature review and we found to our surprise there is almost no literature on compliments in healthcare. and given that all these trusts were have had all this data we were again motivated to do the study so the first descriptive question was just what are patients complimenting? Because in a patient-centered way of doing healthcare, it's important to know what patients value because then we could do more of that and build systems around. But it was also important to us to address a sort of second question, which is why are they doing this? And there's a puzzle. So we've done work on complaints as well. And often when we analyze complaints and we do presentations to complaints, people say, oh, well, they're complaining so that they get some monetary reward or compensation and so on. And so there's always a sort of hidden motive. But this is why compliments are beautiful. There is, there's no hidden motive. There's no comeback. There's no money. There's no reward. And yet some of these, you know, 500 word, 1000 word compliments, these take it 
take some time to write, they're thoughtful. They're being sent off. There's no return coming from it. It's pure goodwill. And so the question is, why are they doing this? What are they trying to achieve? And in the theory of gratitude, stepping back a bit, uh, there's different approaches to it. The approach I quite like and which we took in the papers is what you might call a functionalist approach. And it, it derives from my background in communication, that when people say things or when people express gratitude, it's not just a, a description of a psychological state, a propositional statement about the world. They are doing something. They are, they are intervening in a social relation. It's like you know, something quite practical they're doing. And the question is, what are they doing? And we, we came up with this sort of typology. They are either acknowledging the, the staff, which is really just to say, I know what you did. And this is like when you go into a shop, you buy something, the person gives it to you and you say, thank you. And the thank you sort of closes the relationship, marks that you recognize what they've done. And it has a whole load of communicative significance. But they're not just acknowledging. We said they're also sometimes rewarding. And rewarding is very evident if, for example, they send the compliment letter to the member of staff, but they copy in the CEO or they send it to the CEO, but they ask the CEO to compliment this member of staff. That's, you know, when you, when you copy in the boss, you're, you're giving a reward, really. So there's rewarding. And then there's another dimension, the third dimension, which we call promoting. So we have acknowledging, rewarding and promoting. And promoting is, is for me fascinating because it's about patients, especially in the context of the NHS, feeling a degree of citizenship, feeling a degree of uh, capacity to contribute to the direction of the NHS, to promote a certain type of NHS, to promote an NHS grounded in social relations, grounded in the values which people admire. And these promoting kind of compliments are often written to the CEO. They talk about the value of the NHS. They talk about what it, what it means and what it can be. They're often future directed about what it should be. And there's a level of participation, which is, is quite remarkable, remarkable in the context that we often in healthcare try to get participation of patients in research and so on. And I've done it myself. And it's often quite difficult to find patients who want to be involved in your research. And yet here they are doing participation in the NHS spontaneously. So rather than randomly sampling patients to see what they say about the NHS, these are the ones who self-selected as having something important to say. And so I weight them very heavily because I'd rather know what the people who think they have something to say want to say rather than a random sample. If, if you're, I mean, obviously you have questions of representativeness where you want to know on average, are people happy? That's a sampling question. But if you want to know really what are examples of excellent care and how can we learn from them, I wouldn't randomly sample. What I do is I go for the people who've had the most exceptional experiences and try and learn from those as low hanging fruit. And that's what we found. So this typology, acknowledging, rewarding and promoting. And together, and these days are widespread across the 1,200 uh, compliments which we looked at these were evident uh, in the majority of cases so that they're, they're all three widespread it's not like a compliment was only doing one thing they were often doing two or three of, of the things together so yeah that is the that's what we found and how we interpret that is that here is a case 
which, as, as you said, Chris, has, has been sort of dismissed as froth and, and largely ignored. And, and we saw that in the compliments are, are not logged. They're not um, sort of often even not fed back to staff. And I spoke to some staff and they never got compliments, uh, just like you described, Adrian. And, and yet here's real participation. This is real patients who have something to say who are trying to get involved and we're just not making the most of it and so it just feels to me like a missed opportunity this is already done we don't have to get anyone to participate the the patients are doing it we just need to close the feedback loop we just need to make sure that these letters get back to the members of staff we just need to make sure that the institution fulfills or tries to fulfill the aims which the patients have in writing these compliments and just enable the process that then the natural social recognition processes is, is being initiated and we're not closing the loop on it. And so I felt that was a, a missed opportunity and that's the sort of core message of the paper. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, honestly, as you're, as you're speaking there, I'm scribbling stuff down and I'm thinking there, there are so many different directions to go in in this. I think, for me, there's a core message about the intrinsic value of compliments and that institutionally we're not set up to deal with that. And um, uh, honestly, this afternoon, I'm taking this back to my department. I'm going to find somebody who's interested in this stuff and we're going to start to, we're going to, we're going to pull out our compliment letters because believe it or not, in emergency medicine, we do occasionally get them. Ours often seem to have a bit on them, which recognises you work so hard in such awful conditions. Um, and, you know, there's there's lots of different messages within that. But one of the things that that really got me viscerally when when I read the paper and you, you said it again there was there's the 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 organization that just shredded them because there's no um, obligation to keep them. And it, it strikes me as um, and from an ethical perspective, a sort of deontological perspective perspective where it's saying hey there's a set of rules and these are the rules and this is how you do organizational governance and you know if it's not in that set of rules we're not doing it we don't care if there's learning from it um and the destruction of it reminded me of you know the dan Ariely bionicles experiments where where people um either you dan Ariely either um in the experiment people made bionicles and they got a bit less for each bionicle and they made more and more and more bionicles and the person put them under the desk or in the other condition they gave them to the the other person and they took them apart now it made no difference the amount of money the person who was doing it was going to get but the act of taking apart the act of discarding in somebody's work is so bloody destructive and the idea that organizations didn't see value in it and actually you know into the shredder because we're probably through data governance as much as anything else. It was com- yeah, I was all over the place when you were talking there with a million and one thoughts about stuff. Um, I, I suppose one thing I'd like to bring it back to is how come the NHS? How come you chose to go in that direction? Because presumably you could have done this with, oh, I, I don't know, a, any large company. You could have gone to... Um, boots or something or something somebody like that to say hey what happens in your company what do you do with it uh, yeah well, so, so why the nhs is, is firstly we've done research in the nhs so we know it so it's, it's a sort of career trajectory health psychology angle but also um the nhs 
is a remarkable institution by virtue of being a national health service. And therefore, you know, sampling, uh, you know, 54 NHS trusts is possible and, and they are governed by freedom of information and, and so on. And they, even if it doesn't always happen in practice, there is at, at a high level a willingness to learn and a, a recognition that, that we should make the most of these. Whereas with private companies, there's no such sort of public leverage and so on. I also, we have analyzed actually complaints and open feedback from many different companies outside the NHS. And the citizenship angle isn't there, I have to say. It is more, they're doing it for the money, they're, especially when complaining, they want, they want a reimbursement or something. And so it's actually partly through, and we looked at yeah, big companies' complaints, and they're, the NHS ones are different for complaints and compliments. They have this citizenship angle. And it, it comes back then to what I think the NHS, by virtue of being a national healthcare organization, there may be some downsides that it's not private. Certainly some people argue that, but I would argue there's a major upside and it is that it can really get people to buy into it as a national project. And it, it, it can benefit from a degree of citizenship and a degree of goodwill, which a private company has great trouble soliciting. And so that again, makes it somewhat tragic if we're not using this unique selling point of the NHS, that it is a national project, that we, we discard that when actually that would be one of its strengths vis-a-vis -a, -vis a private healthcare system. So, yeah, again, a million and one thoughts about that. I, mean, I suppose one of the things, that, just a comment at the side is that um, I, I researched the development of wisdom and wise, wise decision-making in doctors, but we also do a little bit of it in um in industry and there is a lot of goodness and positive intent that exists it, it um exists out with nationalized structures like the health service there are a lot of people in business who who really are driven by the positive stuff but perhaps we see them a wee bit differently i have one question to go back to your complaints but and and that's only if only if this is information that's sort of close to the surface of your head. Um, when you looked at the complaints work previously, one of the things that we tend to believe in the NHS, and I think we're erroneous, but I don't know, is that people complain for money. And my experience, and I've sat with a lot of people in rooms when they've been coming to complain about what's going on. My experience of people who come to complain is, is not that there is a fiscal interest for them, that they want something different. Um, but I wondered what you found when you'd looked at that, because you mentioned it briefly. Yeah, definitely. We, we have looked at that. Um, I don't have the numbers at the top of my head because we've got many data sets where we've looked at it. But the majority motivation for complaints is so that it doesn't happen to someone else. And so the citizenship angle is there. It's just we've always found it more difficult to argue for because people can always say there is an ulterior motive. And maybe they're just saying that, but really what they want is some um, monetary reward. Just one reflection on what you're saying. You made me think about the uh, motivation on, on um, what is it that motivates people to say thank you or give compliments? Um, which I hadn't really considered before I read your paper, actually, because it just seems sort of intuitive. But actually, I've quite often met with some 
cynics who look at the learning from excellence projects and say, why, why are we just saying, giving people positive feedback for it? the majority of the time they're just doing their job? And I sort of, I've never really had a good answer for this, but I, I, I try and get pithy responses and put them out on Twitter. <laughs> it's one of my hobbies. And I, I put out a message that said, um, well, you know, why would we do that? It's the same reason that you would say thank you to the bus driver when you get off the bus. There's, but I, I wondered if there's a more sort of well-described um, reason for that. What is the motivation? Is it just about showing other people that you are grateful? Is it actually that I believe the bus driver will do a better job if I say thank you? Um, is it being reciprocal? Um, the, the, these are the sort of everyday, what we call everyday excellence. It's sort of everyday someone doing their job, but there's something, there's something quite good about it that you want to say thank you for. It's a, it's a great question. Yeah, we could get on the bus. We don't even have to make eye contact. The procedures are in place. It's very rare now on the tube or the bus or whatever. You need human intervention. It's all automated. So why do we look someone in the eye and say thanks? And, and yet it happens all the time. I think it's about the, the type of world we want to live in. Would you like to live in a world where you treated other humans just as things? And what would that be like? Uh, there's a quote from William James, a uh, founding father of psychology. And he says, the cruelest torture which can be imagined is to be let loose in the world and have no one look at you no one know your name and everyone blank you. And he says, from that, you know, being locked in a cell would be a, a relief because the nature of who we are is, is built out of social relations. And if you undermine those social relations, you undermine what it is to be human. Conversely, if you cultivate those social relations, if you say thank you, you become a human, you become a richer human. It's, this is about what kind of people we want to be, what kind of world we want to live in. What do we want to be thanked? Do we want, and it's not just about do we want to be thanked, that's wrong, I would take that back. In thanking the bus driver, I'm a certain type of person. Yeah. And, and so it's a constitutive act. And I don't mean that in some sort of, way that, oh, it is ultimately selfish. I think that's a misnomer, that question. But we're all working together to build a, a, a rich human world, a, a world which is nice for humans to inhabit. And we somehow just spontaneously contribute to this. But institutions, as we've already said, uh, aren't great at cultivating that side of, of this spontaneous effort to build a, a human-centered world. And maybe even as our institutions become more and more proceduralized, this layer of goodwill, of gratitude, of, of looking each other in the eye and saying thanks, which can almost, it can't really be regulated, can't be managed. It, it falls below the radar and yet it persists. That's the human element. And I think without it, the world would be greatly impoverished. Nice. Uh, um, I, mean, I've now, I now say to people when they say, you know, what, why would you give positive feedback um, for people just doing their job? I just say, why, why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cheap, yeah. it's easy, yeah. and, and it makes the world a better place. Um, one of the things that may be quite helpful to do at this stage is just to um, 
be clear about what we mean about different types of gratitude or compliments or positive feedback that like just explore or lay down what the nomenclature is here um could you just take us through that because you've used the word compliment and then gratitude and they're clearly interrelated yes so it depends a bit how there's different definitions of gratitude gratitude in the literature has become to my mind, unfortunately, psychologized. It's a psychological state of feeling gratitude. And it is interesting, this literature. It shows that just feeling gratitude is good for the person who feels gratitude. And people who keep gratitude diaries of the things they're grateful for, it improves their mental health and well-being in many domains. quite a consistent finding. Um, but there's also the gratitude of the recipient, the person who receives the gratitude, once you conceptualize gratitude as something which is said, which is verbalized. So because I focus more on communication, I take this communicative view of gratitude, that it's not just something in the head, it's something communicated about the social relation. And it indicates an interdependence. Um, we are, we live in, an, in a world of interdependence. And to not acknowledge that interdependence is frankly what, what Marx and others called alienation. So you, you're part of a big system, but you're not aware of it. You're, 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 to recognize our interdependence, gratitude, as Adam Smith who said this, is the means by which we recognize the, 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 the web of interdependence that we're embedded in. So I take a sort of Adam Smith approach to gratitude. Interesting, Adam Smith, of course, is the guy who did the invisible hand and economics, and many people know him for that. But alongside that book, Wealth of Nations, he did another book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is, is primarily, he says, gratitude is the basis of society. And that's when I said earlier, it's about the glue which holds society together. That was Adam Smith's idea that you need the economic system, but you also need that social relation, mutual recognition of our interdependence. So I take that relational definition of gratitude as opposed to the psychological. It's, it's, a, it's a feeling in the, in the head, if you like. Yeah. approach so there are differences in the literature there then compliments are is are defined in the paper as the communicative act so the compliment isn't in your head right the compliment is the act of saying the act of writing it's the bit of paper which passes between us yeah yeah that's really useful to set that out. I, hadn't, I hadn't considered gratitude actually on those two kind of planes so now yeah we really understand um where you're coming from there oh i mean this is completely fascinating alex um just just something briefly before we get on to the next bit but one of the things i'm interested in is leadership and the change in behavior that happens when people become leaders and i wonder if if you have any thoughts on, on what i'm about to say which might be that, Chris, you're talking rubbish. I'm totally down with that. Um, that when people become leaders, we know that they're, that can be accompanied by a sense of entitlement. That sense of entitlement sometimes manifests itself as an expectation that others will do for you without necessarily a need to recognize other people are doing for me. So that entitlement perhaps leads to people not showing gratitude, not thinking about the people around them. And I remember many years ago walking behind a very senior doctor in my 
organization as they walk from one length of the organization to the other through multiple fire doors. And at every door they walk through, they open the door, they never look behind them, they let the door swing back. I caught each one in turn. And I, and I was fizzing angry by the end of it. Um, but, it, you know, it's one of those things that I went away and thought about. And I just wondered what your take on what your take on the entitlement and the lack of gratitude shown by leaders is. Oh, that's a very nice observation. Again, I, I come back in my own thinking to what a missed opportunity. Because not only is the act of communicating gratitude really free it it doesn't cost very much but the more senior one is the more valuable it is especially in an organizational context to get a thank you from a senior doctor a senior surgeon or from the the managed senior you know the ceo is worth a lot so it's it's odd as as people move up in in the sort of institutional structures they get that sense of entitlement and don't uh, engage in gratitude and because I think they would get a lot more from people. They get the goodwill. Uh, It's about, it goes back to the heart of of that social glue. In expressing gratitude, there is actually quite a complicated thing going on. Um, If I I can take a moment to do a sort of bit of a social psychological analysis, you do something for me. And um, this is a gift arguably a gift and a gift there's a lot of the social psychology of the gift is what I'm talking about that a gift introduces an imbalance in the relationship when I acknowledge that that you held the door open for me I say thank you I'm also saying I'm somewhat indebted to you and so I then have to try and repay the gift which means I will try and open the door for you at some point and that's where you get this sort of moral reinforce and the thing spirals forward in a positive way that by acknowledging not only our interdependence, but an indebtedness, I'm opening myself up to doing something for you. And that then feeds forward. Uh, just like, you know, if, if, if someone gives you a gift for Christmas and you didn't give them a gift, you're very concerned next year to give them a gift. Yeah, so, so that's the, the, the yeah. sort of paradigm. But this happens on a micro scale. You, you go out with someone, they buy you a cup of coffee. The next time you feel you want to buy them a cup of coffee. But we can go even down, holding the door open, and then you want to hold the door open. And, and building in, we, what we're doing is building into the social relation a set of obligations makes it sound too... Um, compelling it means that by virtue of acknowledging our indebtedness to each other we know we've got each other's back we're going to help each other we've got a social relation going and that feels good it's it's not a bad thing it's a it's a good thing I suppose then when it's done by a leader there there's there's a degree of role modeling and moral reinforcement going on at the same time and um, it feels highly virtuous um, so although sometimes when we sit and talk about it like this, it can sound almost manipulative, which if, <laughs> uh, of course it could be that as well, I guess. Um, I, I just wanted to ask you about a very, a very related um, topic, and that, that's the benefits of receiving and expressing gratitude or compliments. Um, and... What's your take on where the literature, has, well, what the literature has shown us around this? 
it's it's rare, but uh, this really is a win-win-win-win scenario. It's good for the person expressing it. It's good for the person receiving it, and it's very cheap and easy to do. Uh, there's there's really no downsides, and the fact that we don't make more use of it uh, is remarkable. Although I, I I sincerely agree with you that it could be manipulative, and the moment it becomes manipulative or smells of manipulation, I think the whole thing falls apart because. A, we're actually dealing with the essence of authentic human relations. Uh, and if, if it seemed to be manipulative, it, it, I think it would, would not work. And so I, I take the view maybe rather than trying to encourage it, we need to just let the natural process happen. So rather than trying to overly manage it and engineer it, it's more a case of, well, look, there's cases where people are spontaneously, authentically trying to do it and we're not letting it uh, close the loop and, and, and do do its natural process, for want of a better word. And yeah, the the that would that's my view on on, on that. I think with the the leadership and role modeling, I think that is very important. Um, and when, when I gave the example of there being a, a debt, so so to say thank you to someone is to acknowledge they did something for you, and in some sense you have. You're indebted, even in a tiny, tiny way indebted. But this reveals a vulnerability. And I wonder if that's why, going back to your point about leaders becoming entitled, if they go around thanking everyone, they're, they're somewhat vulnerable. They're saying they're a little bit indebted to multiple people and so on, and it, get, it can get complicated. And yet I think that acknowledging that we are all indebted to each other. It's, it's an empirical fact in my mind, you know, take away the rest of the world. I'm not going to be who I am. I'm not going to be sitting here. I'm, I'm you know, our, our Zoom chat now is dependent upon so many people doing so many things, which I've never had a chance to thank them for, right? We are so embedded in social relations that we are, yeah, we're, we're actually all quite alienated from the extent to which we're part of larger systems. Acknowledging that may by some people be viewed to be a vulnerability. I think it's just a reflection of an honest assessment of who and where we are. Yeah. And, and the, the, the gratitude and the compliments mm -hmm. and the thanking and the acknowledgement in many respects for me, it, it wraps up in an expression that I heard many years ago and the, which has taken me a while to get my head around, which is, I see you. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. that, that act of recognizing another human being or another being and that they have done something and that is deserving of acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. um, or even that somebody for being is deserving of, of acknowledgement is not casting your eyes away from the beggar in the street. It's looking at it, maybe not giving them money, but it's acknowledging that they exist as well. Uh, and for me, an awful lot of this wraps up in, in the recognition of other, other people and then adding gratitude on top of that is to reinforce the relationship. But anyway, I know Adrian has uh, has some questions. I'm going to go back to him. Yeah, actually, I wanted to uh, pick up on what you, where you were going, Chris, with the leadership stuff, because I was reflecting on this while you were talking, and I've, um, well, Chris will know this, but I've recently handed over a kind of a departmental leadership role uh, at work, and I've had quite a lot of time to reflect on it since then and it occurs to me just now that actually as you go up a tr traditional leadership ladder 
you are giving more gratitude than you're receiving and you get less and less and less um rec- you receive less and less gratitude you're clearly you, you encounter more serious problems and that's part of the role but actually there's very very little gratitude passed up the chain and 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 we've looked at our learning from excellence reports in this respect and there are reports going in both directions using the conventional hierarchical concepts but but majority of them are peer-to-peer um, on a level or or they go sort of go down the chain uh, is this is this something we should be doing more of you say this is win-win um should we be more grateful to our leaders is this would this make their job easier and therefore they'd be more effective i think that's a great observation i i have no evidence on it but i i thoroughly sort of would support what i've seen informally that as you the leaders tend to get less um, genuine uh, gratitude and, and recognition, perhaps because in a formal setting, there's um, concerns about what it is to say thank you to someone who, like who, for a junior person to to be gratitude, to be grateful uh, to a senior person. It has all sorts of role implications and and so on. I mean, some people will try to ingratiate themselves as it can, of course, be manipulated in various ways. Um, but I think this speaks to a broader issue about the culture. Uh, and this goes back to, Chris, your point about um, leader leadership in a culture of gratitude in a sense that that if they do it do they role model it for others and i think you can create a culture of it of course the danger with a culture of just lots of gratitude is that it is undifferentiated that we don't disentangle what is worthy of gratitude from what isn't and this is where i do think there's two sides to this you want to have a a culture there's a lot of psychological safety and so on about having a, a culture to be able to speak up and raise concerns either with peers or with senior people and the flip side of that should also be a culture of a psychological safety to say to someone who's senior you know that was really good i really valued that for me and for our team that that was really helpful or that enabled us to do something or say something or address some concern whatever and so these two sides need to be balanced we need a culture in which we can simultaneously talk about what's not working and what is working and between the two of those we get our guiding light if you see that and that is what will hopefully gravitate people towards best practice yeah Yeah, we talk we talk a lot in lfe about trying to restore balance I think it's, it's still heavily weighted in yeah. terms of looking at complaints and what's going wrong and sort of deficit-based model. Mm. Um, so one, you mentioned authenticity mm. and um, and we often use the word sincerity. To, you know, a positive feedback has to be sincere, otherwise it becomes a platitude and it's worthless. Um, one of the things we have done, and I'm quite interested in pursuing this idea further, is using positive feedback, which would be gratitude compliments, um, as an intervention to improve performance, improve uh, quality, uh, improve processes. And we, we've done a, a formal QI project called the Praise Project, where we, we just showed people um, doing quite routine work, actually, in, in relation to antimicrobial practice uh, when they were doing it right, uh, as, in right as in according to best practice. 
well-established best practice. And we found over time, the more positive feedback we gave, the more people changed their behavior in the right direction. Um, and this appeared to actually be a dose-response effect. Mm. And I think this, it strikes me that this is underused and there's potential to, to access this potentially in uh, other quality improvement areas but also maybe in implementation science. So we know there's, a, there's always a long gap between establishing what is good practice from like a clinical trial uh, and then actually getting that to the patient. It can be you know, 10, 15 years before uh, good practice, uh, evidence-based practice actually makes it to the patient. So there's this, there's this difficulty. How do you then implement it? And I, I, I was thinking that this approach may be in another way to bring about implementation. Definitely. Um, yeah. No, I think that's a great point. It is, um, you know, we did some research at one point on vision statements for companies, and and they all love they all spend all their time making all these vision statements. And meanwhile, we're looking at the vision statements. I'm also looking at the compliments and complaints and so on. And they're ignoring those. They're stuffing those in the file drawer, and they're busy working on their their vision statements. And I think you know, this is like trying to drive a car where you just look at your destination and drive, right, without any attention to the details of who's on the road or where the corners are. The 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 vision of where you're trying to go gets operationalized through the micro details of this practice, that practice, this corner, that person in the road, where you have to navigate micro details. And this is where those feedback loops, closing them, is learning. This is how you get to any goal, any vision a company has. You can't just say the vision. You have to bring it down to moments of practice which are supported or not supported. And that's how you drive your car, navigating the micro details, and the goal will look after itself. And it's the same with an organization, I think, that those visions need to come down into yeah, there's someone doing a practice and we have to have a way of rewarding and supporting that that's best practice. If I put it the other way around, if I wanted to design a stupid organization, I would break all those feedback loops. I would say that um, I tell people, you know, you do your job, but I never give them feedback on whether it was good or bad. Imagine we designed an organization like that. So people had things they had to do, but we never told them what was good and what was bad. It would gradually, people would just start to get different ideas as to what was good and bad practice. They'd have their own ways of doing it. And it would it would slowly sort of fall apart, frankly, I think. So these, they're very micro feedback processes, potentially, you know, just the team acknowledging this was good, moments of small reward. But these are signposts on the road. These are moments to stop, to turn, to go forward, and we, we need all that feedback continuously. We, we live in a world of feedback. Um, yeah, feedback is so central. To it. We couldn't walk without feedback all the time from our sort of sense of balance and so on. And it's like that with an organization or in more complex practice. We need feedback. So I'm convinced these are hugely powerful interventions. I've never done the kind of intervention you describe. But just from a sort of social psychological perspective, it makes so much sense to me yeah. that this is valuable. It's interesting that it it surprised me how effective it was in that project. So the, the only reason we devised that project was because we would occasionally get cynical comments saying, how do you know any of this is working? And I just thought, well, well let's, let's make a project where we can just measure something, mm-hmm. um, do some really basic positive feedback. 
because I'm sure it'll have a little bit of impact. And it turns out it's really effective. Yeah. And and now I'm thinking, okay, this is actually a direction we should go <laughs> with this with this project because we 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 have actually in healthcare we have actually designed a system that is not it is feedback poor. So we get lots of clinical feedback, and I think that's one of the reasons we make progress in healthcare is that you see when your patient gets better or gets worse. And actually, you know, the sensitivity of the individual and team practice when you're treating patients is actually quite high. So we do make progress over time. There's a long history of progress in healthcare, but um, we're not very good at the social feedback uh, at all. And that's one of the things we're trying to change. I think the challenge, and this is a question I have for both of you, is while we might all agree on the importance of that and, and the, the, the question is operational. How do you embed that feedback in healthcare or any organization? And also how, if it's informal, how is it managed? How is it, how do you know feedback's in the right direction? Who controls the feedback? You suddenly, how do you manage, operationalize and manage the feedback? I mean, in, so my question for you, Adrian, is in your case, who decided on the feedback? Who provided it? what if it was not good practice which was done and who decided it again like how was the feedback delivered yeah yeah i mean we i mean our sort of personal uh preference for me when implementing a change project or um and delivering any kind of project is actually to go with the flow as much as possible and be sort of organic so if it's not working somewhere find where it is working and, and build on that rather than try and force it through. So along, along the way, for example, um, when, when we implemented LFE, we met a few sinks. I keep referring to the sinks and I, 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 um, I just very politely ignored them and, and, but worked with the people who got it and, and they and then it had grown in those areas. And, and there's, there are some cynics have been converted, but others still remain and that's fine, but we've kept it completely, organic there, there was a stage when we first implemented a, another trust um thought oh we could regulate this we could actually get some data drive the numbers make an arrangement with the commissioners so in healthcare there's this concept that you can actually make a sort of like almost like a contract or a sequence with your commissioners if you don't achieve your goal then you, you you have a penalty for it and this we this was cancelled as a concept because it was completely against the this spirit, this organic spirit of, of, of this type of feedback. We're now actually getting to the point, having been doing this for six or seven years, where I'm beginning to wonder if there is a role for making this kind of um, more present throughout the whole of healthcare, um, not necessarily in a regulated way, but in in a, in in a sort of a more top-down, this is accessible for everybody. Um, I really haven't got an answer to this yet, but it's something that is going round and round in my mind. I don't want to kill it by um, making this sort of almost mandatory or perceived as mandatory and standardised. Um, I like the way it's, it's organic. It's turned into lots of different brands across the NHS. So there's Learn from X, there's Grey Tips, there's Socks, there's Kudos, there's all these different names same thing and i but eventually that may lead to it becoming something else in different areas um so yeah so we're we're actually at a bit of a crossroads i think 
I wonder if one bit of research which would help it along is showing that the people who give positive feedback, that they are liked more by everyone else and <laughs> disseminating that, that I'm sure they are viewed positively. So, so I did just want to add one thing to what Alex had said is about how, how people are operationalizing this. Um, yeah. And for me, I, I use a different lever when we're talking about operationalizing positive feedback um, and compliments. And that's when I, I helped to run a couple of leadership courses and embedding that within the roles and responsibilities of leadership to recognize the effort of others. And I, that's gratitude. Um, and to 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 make sure that people understand that they are seen um and that it is appreciated so that that's the mechanism that that i tend to use uh, around that and also I, hopefully i try to role model it myself hopefully um i did have a, a, another question that's about positive feedback as a moral reinforcer we've talked about this a little bit earlier i, I just wondered what your take on what does this mean for civility and civility so rather than sort of stamping on the negative behaviors is there a space here where we could work on reinforcing the positive behaviors and where what sort of impact do you think that might have yeah i think um you, you, the work you've done on civility uh, I, I find really important um because there's there's a hidden strand of research in social psychology, which has never been identified as such, but it's about the power of politeness. Really, the power of politeness. No one's written about it, but it is really, um, you know, in, in the emergence of the rules for the Houses of Parliament, they had to bring in politeness as a means of sort of regulating it. You take classic experiments like uh, most people know Milgram's shock experiments. And one way of analysing that is what, why did people go all the way it's that they didn't want to be rude and leave the experiment you know the when we enter into social relations um we have a sense of obligation to each other and a commitment to each other which is really powerful and the point there about moral reinforcement we live in a moral world we're moral humans in the sense that we're deeply attuned to other people to what they think about us and we're very touchy about that. And we, do, you know, if, if we get a feeling someone doesn't like us, in a sense, it makes no difference to us, right? They might just not like us. But we get very upset about it because we're moral beings, we're social beings. And civility and politeness, they, you know, you could really dismiss those as froth on the top of social relations. But my God, they're prevalent. And why do they occur everywhere? And why do we teach our kids to do it? Why is it so widespread if it's froth, right? Surely from a sort of rational economic point of view, this is wasted energy. It's not wasted energy. It's building social relations. It's building uh, commitments to each other. It's making, uh, it's, it's making, you know, humans are more than the sum of the parts. And by, by building on our social relations, we become more than the sum of the parts. We need organizations which have that sort of, goodwill and gratitude to catch all the little things which weren't written into the rules there'll always be bits which don't fit into the rules and we have to rely on humans to be good humans to pick up all those bits and when we when we are decent to each other when we support each other when we recognize each other 
I think we're building up that social capital. We're empowering ourselves collectively because we become a team, we become a unit, we become more than the sum of the parts. Brilliant. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, I, I keep having to stop and write stuff down as you're talking. There's, there's lots of things that are, are bouncing, bouncing around in my head. Um, and actually, I know how short we are for time, so I'm, I'm going to hand back to Adrian. Um, That's great. But yeah, I really yeah. need to speak to you again at some point. Yeah, I agree. You know, one thought. We should do another episode at some point because yeah, we're just scratching the surface here. Um, Alex, we, we use something called appreciative inquiry, which I'm sure you've come across um, as this kind of... Um, when, when we follow up some of the excellence reports and, and do a deeper inquiry into... Um, what they're about and what the future could be, what 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 uh, what could be better, uh, or can we imagine a better future, and then how would we get there based on what we've seen? Um, so, a question we're asking all the guests is is along those lines: is, is can you imagine a, a better version of the future? Um, and then, you know, how how could we get there if, if, from your perspective, professionally, or just observations on the world? Um, have you got thoughts on that? So I have a general thought, um, which keeps coming back to me in, in various domains. I think the challenge of institutional life is to build in social relations. Social relations, when left to their own, tend to work quite well. We're good at working together. And when, when we work together, you imagine two people working together. One person says something, the other person says something. They build on each other and they become more than the sum of the parts. The problem is when we build institutions, we fragment those social relations. So it becomes you do this, I do that, someone else does that. And, and the social relation gets broken down. And while that sort of uh, speedy Taylorism or Fordism of dividing the role the jobs into many roles and everyone just following the rules and the whole machinery works while that can be efficient it's not very flexible and it doesn't give a lot of social recognition and social rewards it doesn't make a meaningful work package really and so the future i would envision is a future where we have slightly more humanized institutions institute because institutions we build we made them Right? They didn't, they weren't naturally there. We're fully in control of the structure of our institutions. And I don't think we fully appreciate that. We often build our institutions on a mod, on an impoverished model of the human who just does things for rewards. They don't, they do things for many other reasons. And we have an impoverished model of communication that the boss tells you what to do and you go and do it. But maybe you're unsure and you want to ask a question about that. You want to have come back in two or three turns of communication to refine processes, to get recognition and so on. All of these dynamics aren't just ballistic one-shot communications. They're, they're social relations where we just haven't managed to build that in to institutions. And I think if we can, we'll make happier people and better institutions. So I don't know how to do it, <laughs> but the vision is there. Well, you can start with um, getting a better understanding, I guess. This yeah. concept of interdependence you've referenced many times mm -hmm. today, and I think that's a key, a key point. Chris, do you want to um, wrap yeah. up? Yeah, um, I have a comment, um, and then and then I have a question for you. But so one of the things for me is obviously my thing is the civility saves life stuff, um, and for me. 
somebody said to me a while back, you know, civility, oh, isn't that really basic? And it sort of struck at me, and I may have mentioned this before, Adrian, but actually, you know, I think basic's the wrong word. Um, I think it's fundamental. And I think it's a fundamental building block of how we treat each other if we want to have respectful cultures where we want people to be able to contribute, where we want them to feel like they're seen and that they have a voice. And that when we permit cultures where people are not treated in a civil fashion, when they're not treated respectfully, well, we simply don't get the information from them. And particularly when that's a hierarchical thing, what a bloody mess that results in, because we simply don't get enough information into the overall pool of information to make good decisions. Um, All of which is just me downloading something really quickly because I know how much, how little time we've got left. I have a much more intellectually rigorous question for you now. Okay. Are you ready, Alex? Right. Okay. Um, so we ask everybody this. And it's about when you walk in the room, what's the theme music that you would like to be ringing in other people's heads when you walk through the door? Not what you think they hear, but what would you like it to be? <laughs> And we're judging well, you. Well, I, I don't think I deserve my own personal theme music. But if, if the ideas which I try to champion had uh, some theme music, I think it would have to be not that I particularly like the song, but I am a, an optimist. And so I think it would have to be something like The Only Way Is Up. Because um, I genuinely believe that we that a lot of these aspects we're dealing with are under our control. And we have progressively made the world a better place and we will make it a better place. These are challenges. The the very work you both are doing is is making the NHS better. We are progressing this. We are understanding it more. Yes, we didn't understand all the dynamics of, of gratitude and so on when we were setting up the NHS, but now we do and we're modifying it and, and we will continue to do so. So I believe um we can and are making uh, the nhs better and um these ideas are, are, are can play a powerful role in that and that's why I, I honestly believe the only way is up i mean sometimes in the world today it doesn't feel like it but but we have made good progress and we should maybe be grateful for that you know returning full circle that um we also have to praise each other for the work good work which has been done and be grateful for you know the the great work which has been done and recognize that brilliant answer thank you so so much for your time alex thank you both those really thought-provoking questions and so on yeah thanks you've been very generous with your time is there somewhere where um people in the community can find more of your work i mean you're an academic stuff is that in the literature there is i mean google scholars basically it's it's all there that's the the lse does keep a web page but it's it's not as up to date as google scholar to be honest um but yes i am i have an lse web page with contact details and more than happy to uh correspond and chat with with anyone who's interested in these topics and very close to my heart so uh, it's always learning for me right well hopefully we can have another conversation down the line and pick up on some more of these yeah, um, questions Alex, stuff. one thing I would absolutely love to spend some time talking to you about is misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. For me, it's become the, the missing link between 
um, incivility and what we do about it. The missing link for me is that, and we don't interpret each other very well. Yeah. And once you get your head around that, then there's a whole bunch of misunderstandings and maybe we can be a bit more kind to each other in our interpretation of what's happened. I would love to have a chat about that because few people try to be uncivil. Few people try yeah. to be idiots and jerks, you know. Yep. It's, it's normally an observer perspective and uh, you see massive asymmetries on that, yeah. Fantastic. I, I'm really looking forward to being able to hold that conversation with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I think it was pretty wide ranging. We, we end up talking about the motivators of gratitude and compliments and understand that people want to acknowledge good things that people have done to reward them and to continue to promote them. But we ended up going in different directions. We talked about Marx and Adam Smith. We talked about gratitude and social connectedness and then into entitlement and leadership and how saying thank you takes the same amount of time when people get higher and higher up the hierarchy, but it carries even more weight. And we talked about the risks of gratitude. We talked about the power of politeness. And we even got into how we might build better organizational models of communication. And I just found that absolutely fascinating. I hope you did too. Till next time. Cheers.